invite you to turn to Matthew's Gospel with me, chapter 27. We've come now to the, certainly the climax of each of the four Gospels, the cross of Jesus Christ. We come to subject that to lay it before you in human terms is not pleasant. In fact, it's the height of unpleasantness. And yet, I don't think any of you would argue with me at how important it is. It's difficult in preaching this material to know how much or how little of it to take at a time. We could go almost verse by verse and, and see things of deep meaning that are here, but we'll have other opportunities, Lord willing, to consider this material as we have considered it in the past. For today, we read the preparation that took Jesus to the cross and not the completion of the event, but I'm reading verses 27 through 44. Listen reverently to God's holy word. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him. They took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. And after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, They met a man from Cyrene named Simon and forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right hand and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days... Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, teachers of the law, and elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. O God, our Father, you give us this real scene that happened to your son. There's too much here to take it all in. 
but we ask our Father that you might show us Jesus, the King, in the midst of this indignity and shame, and secure our praise to him for his honor. Amen. I remember a scene from my childhood that I am deeply ashamed of being part of, even though I was really a spectator, not a willing participant in what went on. It was actually a church picnic. You think of church picnics as times of innocence and and fun, and certainly nothing too dark is going to happen there, but it did this day. I was eight years old among many kids at the picnic, and you know how boys are, or girls for that matter, you always like to try to hang out with those who are a little bit older than you are. You feel important if the older kids want to have you along. I think my friend and I were the youngest among a group of about eight boys. The older ones, I believe, were around 11 or 12 who went off on a ramble in the woods while the, after the picnic, after the meal had happened at the picnic. I felt cool to be with the older boys. We came to a place where there was a stream, as I recall it, and right away several of us saw a remarkable bird that was there. It was a large bird. It had blue and white markings. I, I don't know why I knew this at age eight, but I sensed I knew what it was, and I checked it later in the bird book at home. It was a kingfisher, pretty unusual bird. You may never have even seen one. I believe they're protected species now. It seemed like this bird was moving about awkwardly and wasn't really able to fly. I don't think they fly long distances anyway. Suddenly, one of the older boys said, let's get it. And he picked up a stick, as several others did. And a chase ensued in the woods for what seemed like five or ten minutes. The kingfisher ran for its life, but he lost the race. And I was sickened at what happened to that bird at the hands of those boys with sticks and rocks. Suddenly it didn't seem so cool to be with the older boys. That experience has always haunted me as a senseless example of cruelty and brutality. At the age of eight, I knew it was irrational and it was wrong to treat a beautiful creature that way. And I walked back to the picnic by myself. I think of that because it's a lot like the human impulses that are let loose in our text this morning. Matthew 27 tells us of Jesus on his final approach to the cross, receiving brutal treatment from total strangers for the most part. In Matthew, the earthly life of Jesus, you recall, began with Herod the Great pursuing him, wanting to destroy him as an infant. And all through his life, he faced various kinds of antagonism, people testing him, swearing that they would do harm to him or 
show him up as being false. And it only intensified as he got closer to the end of his life. We often think of the cross in terms of terrible physical torture. It was that, of course. But it was so much more. Socially, spiritually, the cross took any human being to the outer limits of what a person could possibly endure. And scorn and ridicule were not the least of what was done to him here. Things that could not just cut a person's flesh but shred his spirit were done to Jesus. Let's see what we can learn about our human condition, our sin, and how awful it is. And maybe also learn about the awesome sacrifice of our wonderful King on our behalf as we study this text this morning. First of all, and as the main point, I ask you to see the abject humiliation of Christ. I know this. 2,000 years of Christianity have tended to sort of, I would say, domesticate the, the picture and the understanding that we have of the cross. They've cleaned it up. You know, we can think about it or we can even look at pictures drawn of it or see movies depicting it. And, well, it's, it's awful, but it's, it's sort of a clean kind of awful. You know, Jesus wears a nice white loincloth neatly in place and his body's not too bloody. And maybe you get used to the idea of crucifixion after many years so that you can think, well, <laughs> kind of like, you know, lethal injection today as a form of capital punishment. You just dispatch with a person and that's it. It certainly wasn't that way. It was much more like a scene pulled out of the depths of hell. Now, we've all heard sermons in which preachers dwell hard on the wounds of Christ and use language to sort of grind it into you how things were done there. The nails, whether they went through his palms or his wrist is debated, the, the skeletal remains that have been found that were crucified, the, the hole is in the wrist where the bones would support the body, but that isn't so important. Hand means more than just fingers and palm. How his death came by suffocation, by slow agony, all your nerves, all your muscles screaming for relief. How the spear burst the pericardial sac around his heart so that it, enlarged by stress, filled out the clear fluid there as well as blood. All that, we could go into it. I could, I could build it up. But it's not really my intent to emphasize the gory anguish of the cross any more than the Scripture itself does. In fact, one of the things that's remarked upon by every Bible commentator is how limited and spare is the description of what was done there at the cross. While the event, of course, is of central importance, Matthew does not put your face into the gory details of it. He, he just, it's sort of a just-the-facts approach. Sometimes a few words describing something that is horrendous. He kind of gives you the minimal description. Well, our attention begins with Jesus in the hands of these Roman soldiers. 
He was arrested apparently by temple police in the Garden of Gethsemane, but now Rome is in charge since Pilate has allowed. Remember, he wasn't condemned. He wasn't found guilty, but Pilate allowed him to be executed. And so these soldiers take over who do this all the time. It's what they do for a living. Now, it's nice to think of Roman soldiers as uh, folks from Italy, perhaps, speaking Latin. Not necessarily true, especially when Rome was occupying a distant province. They often used conscripts, paid soldiers from nearby nations who didn't particularly like, you, you see, the nation that was being occupied. And that was true in Palestine. It is known that there were many Syrians hired by Rome to be soldiers who served in Palestine. They didn't like the Jews. They were more or less Arab people, we would think of them. And the treatment that they gave Jesus, you're inclined to think, well, this was something special, something they kind of singled him out. Not really true. They did this for a living. And while Jesus was a rather prominent prisoner, not so much so to them except for the fact that Pilate and the others had had indicated that he was called some kind of a king, and that was a big joke. So as they manhandled him, on the one hand, you have to say, how could they do this to the Son of God? But at the same time, you have to realize this is what they did, nine to five. This was man's inhumanity to man as they professionally practiced it as a day's work. Not very long ago on the evening news, once again, as happens every so often, security cameras, I guess it was at a gas station, caught six or more Philadelphia policemen yanking a suspect from a car. I'm not sure what he was accused of having done. They grabbed him, threw him down in the asphalt, You probably saw it on the evening news. Six policemen gathering around, kicking the man. Many of them six, eight, or more times, kicking him into submission. Were you proud to be a human being when you watched that? I wasn't. What is it within mankind that sponsors excessive, violent attacks on a greatly outnumbered, weakened, and even helpless victim. And yet it's a fact of what human beings are. I actually want to back up to something I didn't read and didn't emphasize last time. The last verse of our previous text, verse 26, there's a, there are five words in English there that display an amazing part of this abuse. And as for sparse detail, you can hardly believe the horror that these five words contain when Matthew writes, but he had Jesus flogged. I'm sure many of you saw Mel Gibson's much-touted movie a couple years ago called The Passion of the Christ. In speaking about it, I want to say loud and clear, this is not a movie for children to see. Absolutely not. But while it's a movie that has an R rating, I believe it is a movie in all its horror 
that can be instructive to Christians. My wife and I owned the DVD, and we watched it in two hours of complete silence last night. I did that because I wanted to make myself see again visually, and this movie shows it visually better than any I've ever, when you say better, I just mean more vividly than any I've ever known. What Jesus went through. You see, flogging often killed the victim. It was done with what they called the cat of nine tail, a short whip with many strands that had at the ends of each strand a jagged piece of metal or maybe broken glass tied into the leather strand. Just try to imagine that across your back, even once, not 39 times, and that was the standard treatment. Your flesh was laid open, your ribs became exposed, often internal organs were exposed by what this did. And there were prisoners who died at the whipping posts. And the normal way of keeping you in position for that, Gibson's movie doesn't show it this way, but there's testimony that it was done this way, that an iron collar held your neck against a post. You don't go anywhere in that position. And you might die in that position. That was the prelude before all the rest of this was done. And in thinking about my king and my God going through that, somehow Isaiah 50, verse 6, becomes so much more vivid when that prophet said, I offered my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. And because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I set my face like a flint. Jesus did not go through this because there was an iron collar around his neck. He went through it because he decided to accept it. The Scripture makes that very clear. Now, another item of shame after the flogging In verse 28, and it's spoken of in slightly different ways in the other Gospels, verse 28 reports, they stripped Jesus. Verse 35 says they gambled for his clothes. That was in fulfillment of prophecy, Psalm 22. Folks, there's no delicate way to put it. Every painting you've ever seen, every movie you've ever seen has been wrong. People died naked on the cross. Shaming them with nakedness was part of the treatment. Particularly shameful for any Jew who considered nudity to be abhorrent. It was a shameful thing in the Old Testament to be naked and and exposed to the public. And they knew that, and that's why they did it. And then we go on in our text to see this, what you can only call the royal charade here, the crown plated out of some kinds of thorns. It might have been the acacia tree. It doesn't matter what tree it was. Thorns that were made into a circlet to imitate the victory wreath that Caesars wore. You've seen pictures of Caesar wearing that half circle of leaves that was supposed to indicate power and victory. 
Again, a mockery. Roman soldiers, you know, considered themselves superior to anybody. Strength is allowed to do that. When you can beat anybody up, when you can knock anybody down and not be questioned for it, you're allowed to feel superior. At least that's what men think. And here was a prisoner that had somehow been called a king. They didn't understand that, but they thought, well, it's good for some moments of horseplay at his expense. And so in this little charade that they do with the crown of thorns and the red or purple officer's robe and the staff in his hand, they show us in a symbolic fashion what the world really thinks of Christ. Christ isn't taken seriously by most of the world. He's a figure fit for a stage play, a cartoon, and especially for a curse word. Is it just some kind of coincidence that that of all the names in the history of the world, when, when men really want to let loose in a, in a fit of colorful cursing, whose name? Whose name comes to their lips, no matter what their religious background? Does that say something? You have to compare, I think, the, the, the well, I'll call it a game. It's not just a game, but the game of American presidential politics. I'm not commenting on any particular candidate today. When I think of the way in which men or women who may or may not be qualified leaders, they may or may not have great abilities, can use our media today and, you know, sort of pump up their image and and their persona so the whole world will think that they're the hope of democracy. And if anybody dares to criticize them in a certain way, their, their campaign chairman will fly into outrage and demand an apology. Well, compare that or contrast that, if you will, to this man we're talking about today who has the supreme qualifications of leadership and power in all the world that he does not need to justify. And he's being derided and shamed and ridiculed like a carnival sideshow freak. And yet he was a king higher and more powerful and more grand than any pharaoh who ever breathed in Egypt amid all his gold and all of his splendor. But Jesus just endured this ribald mockery with silence and no word of protest. We should protest. In fact, the entire English language doesn't contain enough words to compose a proper protest for what was done to the Son of God. A commentator of a former generation, Frederick Farrar, said that the aim of crucifixion as a method of death was never to seek a quick or painless dispatch of its victim. No, not at all. He said crucifixion was aimed to shred an individual's dignity before he died. It was aimed to utterly humiliate a person to the end point where he hardly even resembled a man made in the image of God by the end. Isaiah 52, 14 Again, is prophetic about Christ on his cross, that amazing passage in Isaiah 52 and 53. We read in verse 14 of chapter 52, many will be appalled at him. 
His appearance became so disfigured beyond that of any man. His form would be marred beyond human likeness. In other words, people would look at, the, at that head and those two arms and those two legs and say, is that bloody mess a man? Is that even a man? You know, you would think when the Son of God died, you would expect if an artist could depict it, you'd want some fine scene by a great master like Rembrandt. And he did indeed do many studies of the cross. That's the painting that you would perhaps say this is appropriate to picture the death of the Son of God. The scene that actually existed was painted by someone like Salvador Dali or Picasso. Bizarre, strange, and horrible to look upon. And yet, an ancient hymn that we love to sing with words by Bernard of Clairvaux says, O sacred head, now wounded, with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded with thorns thine only crown, O sacred head, what glory and what bliss until now was thine. In other words, how far you have fallen. But it goes on to say, yet, though despised and gory, I joy to call thee mine. The humiliation of Christ was done in a way that could hardly have been lower or more ignominious. But then we come secondly, and in a shorter point, to say how this text teaches us about the unanimous enmity of human beings against God. And to understand that, you just listen to the voices that are united in catcalls and laughter in this short text. Nameless soldiers speaking, people passing on the road, high priests and elders of the temple, and finally, to make it about as bad as it could be, the two thieves crucified. Now you say, wait a minute, didn't one of them come to faith? Yes, another gospel says he did. But at the beginning, apparently, the two thieves united in derision against him. Did anybody speak up for him? I don't think so. You would have risked brutal treatment yourself or certainly at least have been knocked unconscious if you tried. In Psalm 69, 19 and 20, once again, a prophetic word comes from David when he said, I am disgraced and shamed. Scorn has broken my heart and left me helpless. I looked for sympathy and there was none. I looked for comforters and I found none. Certainly, we've all heard the old saying from childhood, sticks and stones can break my bones, but names will never hurt me. If you believe that's true, you've never been the person being called names. You've never been the person being mocked. Can't you all remember your school days when there was that child who came from a poor family? Our school had a home for uh, displaced children. I guess it was sort of, they didn't call them orphanages anymore in those days, but it was clearly children that didn't have parental care, and they were in this home, and, and they often came to school dressed very poorly, and sometimes their behavior wasn't very great. They got in fights a lot. 
Well, those kids were mocked by the kids of my fine suburb who dressed right, wore the latest fads and the right kind of sneakers and whatever it was you were supposed to do, or that child who was a little chubby or or not good at games or maybe had learning disabilities. Do you remember that? Do you remember how they were treated? Maybe you even were that person. The verbal mockery that surrounded Jesus made sure that he didn't die simply in physical agony. He died in social agony as well, without a friend, without a comforter, without mercy or sympathy. And there's something illustrated in this whole text that's fascinating about the way that when mankind plunges into sin, we often tend to follow a herd instinct. What what is it about that anyway? They call it peer pressure when you're a teenager. You know, let one teenage boy on Friday night say, I can drink six beers in 25 minutes. And you've got four more who say, hey, let's all do it. Who cares about consequences? And let's not pretend that mature adults are always so different either. The philosopher Kierkegaard said, when he is in a crowd, a man becomes impenitent and irresponsible and is capable of any form of brutality. Now, you know, there are people who protest about the view of mankind that the Reformed faith, that the Scripture, for that matter, presents, and it's something we talk about a lot, that we are lost in our sin, that we are rebels against God, we are united in defiance of God's rule from early time in life onward. We don't have an optimistic view of mankind. And I've had people come back at that one way or another and say, well, people aren't really so bad as you make out, preacher. Well, I've heard that often enough. I want to say to them, prove that to me by this scene right here. Prove to me that people don't really hate God and rebel against God and rage against Him. How do you explain this this rage against Jesus unless it was rage against God? Because an evil world cannot abide a holy life. It has to reject it. The mockery of men here is a form of God defiance. That's all you can call it. And it chimes in with the biblical truth that the carnal mind, the unsaved mind of man, is at enmity with God, at odds with God, at war with God. There's a unanimous enmity against God in this passage. But thirdly, this. If we only considered what men did in this passage, we wouldn't have the whole picture. Because we have to read about Jesus in this approach to Calvary and being fixed upon the cross and conclude with the words of Isaiah 53 again that it was the Lord's will to crush him. For all the amazement we have at what human beings did, here's an object of standing amazement. It was the Lord's will crush him. Everything that men was doing here, the, the political posturing and, and, you know, arguments of Pilate against the high priests, the screaming crowds, it was God's purpose that was being worked out in all that. A divine goal, the Scripture tells us, was unfolding even as irrational human rage carried Jesus along like a 
a little chip of wood on a tidal wave. Now, if you feel outraged with what was done to Jesus at the cross, I've got to remind you of some of what we talked about last week, that he was your substitute. And what's picking him up and carrying him forward into the very gate of hell is God's justice, God's wrath, dealing with your own sin. And it was God's amazing purpose that His only begotten Son had to be on the receiving end of this terrible bodily, mental, and spiritual anguish. He had to leave His Son all alone with the demons to attack, or else He would have been compelled to do it to you. Did you notice the mockery given to Him when He was actually on the cross Verses 39 and 43 particularly, look at those. They called, come down off your cross if you are the Son of God. And then they said, if he trusted God, let God rescue him if God wants him. Wow, what a jibe that was. Come down off the cross, you king. Show us you're a king. Folks, we could hold a debate. I could put the question to you and ask you to respond and say, let's try to make a decision among us. What was the greatest miracle attending the life of Jesus Christ in the Gospels? Your hands would go up. Somebody would say, feeding the 5,000. Somebody would say, walking on the sea. Somebody would say, raising a young girl, raising Lazarus to life, his own resurrection, feeding many people, curing many people, you see. What was the greatest miracle? I don't think you'd get the right answer because I say none of the above. The Bible's greatest miracle happened at the cross, or rather, I have to say, it was a miracle of something that did not happen. The fact that this did not happen was a miracle. Miracle of miracles was this, that God in human flesh refused to come off that cross when he had all power at a single command to be able to do so. It was miraculous that he did not respond to this taunt, save yourself. Why? Because he was determined to save you and me. Mocking men said they would believe him if he came down. You see, the miracle was that he stayed up. Glory be to God that he did. That's the greatest miracle that could ever be. He was the Son of God because he stayed up by his determination and obedience to his Father. You know, the the completion of the Scripture is a wonderful thing. Genesis 3 tells us how the curse of sin came on Adam and Eve, and they realized for the first time that they were naked. And they were ashamed to be naked. And God provided coverings for their bodies. And then another event there in Genesis 3 was that he cast them out of paradise. And it says a high hedge of thorns blocked their way from getting back in again. Do you see the beauty? Do you see the unity of the Scripture? At the cross, in order to undo that curse of mankind, God's Son was stripped naked to join us in our shame. And they grabbed that hedge around the garden of paradise and ripped some of it out 
and put thorns around his head so that that hedge would no longer stand in the way of those who are his by faith. Paradise is not barricaded anymore since those thorns were put on him. And I tell you, the bloodied and disfigured face of Jesus Christ was the face of heaven's true king. There was royalty visible through all that caked blood and all that grime and and all those bruises and, and rips and cuts in his skin. His majesty was shining through. His love was on display. And the fact that we had a God who would plunge into the depths like this for us tells us more about God the Father and God the Son than we can learn anyplace else. And by the way, it also tells us that because of that cross, we who belong to Him by His grace through faith, we don't suffer today in a meaningless fashion. We may not see the meaning. The meaning wasn't apparent why Jesus was suffering in that hour, but there was meaning. There was a purpose. There was a goal. And that goal became apparent in eternity. And so will our suffering be redeemed in the purposes of God in the final day. God cannot ultimately be mocked no matter how men might jeer at him for a time. And we ask in the last place, what then shall we use to crown the Son of God today? He asks you just to crown him one way, with your praise and your humble adoration. And if you would crown him this way, then we say to him and about him, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Amen. Our Father, what an amazing thing. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Awful as it is, may our faith not be able to look away from this majestic scene. Thank you for all that we learn about you here. Thank you for your love that went the distance and beyond. Thank you for a great salvation in a great Savior. Amen.